Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. My name is Mark Griffin, your host, and today we'll be discussing what for some is quite a challenging topic. Our topic today is addiction. This is a particularly important topic at the moment due to the incredibly strange circumstances in which the world finds itself. With so many people restricted from their usual daily activities and even locked down in some places, we're being asked what we are going to do with our newly found free time. Now, as a father of six and with one on the way, I have to admit that I haven't actually found any of that extra free time myself. However, subscriptions to online video conferencing and and other digital platforms have skyrocketed and some people have now settled in for that extended binge of what seems like an unlimited amount of content. It would seem that if we aren't careful, a few bad habits when it comes to how how we use our time might start creeping in. And for some people, these bad habits can be the path to addictions. Joining me today to discuss these issues is the events coordinator here at Perusia. Matthew Taig is the presenter and the subject of what has proven to be quite a popular audio presentation, which we recently released uh, back a few months ago now, and it's entitled From Selfishness to Service, One Addict's Journey. And that uh, audio presentation is available from the Perusia store website at the moment. We'll go through those details at the end. But Matthew, thanks for joining and and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, Mark. It's great to have you here. Now, to start off, uh, and so people get a bit of an idea of the perspective which you can bring to to this sort of discussion, can you first of all give us the abridged version of your story so far? Sure, sure. Uh, Well, I was born into the Catholic faith uh, in 1974 um, to parents who were more cultural Catholic than anything else very little Catholicism in the home. And even though I did receive the sacraments at primary school and even served as an altar boy, uh, it wasn't long into my teens that I left the church. Um, And this coincided basically with my uh, very first addiction, which was masturbation. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, my parents um, gave us children the choice of whether to go to church or not. And by this stage, once my first addiction had taken hold, uh, at least I had the um, the integrity to know that if I was going to be engaging in acts that were prohibited by the church, then I shouldn't be presenting myself for communion. So then it simply became, well, why, why am I going to church? So I left the church probably around the age of uh, 13. So you did have somewhat of a knowledge of the faith at that point, though, to, to know those those sort of details and those yes. requirements. Yes, I did have some knowledge. I had um, both sets of grandparents were, were quite faithful Catholics and my, my grandfather on my mother's side in particular um, did provide quite a bit of education. And then during the last two years of primary school, uh, the priest that I served uh, mass for was, uh, was and is a very good and faithful priest. So that certainly all, yeah, helped. Did you find yourself resenting the church and the faith in any way when your practices went in a direction that uh, is frowned upon um, by the church? And did you find yourself resenting the church or just indifferent to it? I, I don't think so. I think it was more an indifference. Uh, it was more that um, my questions had never been properly answered um, and or never answered to my, my satisfaction. And here I wanted to... Uh, engage in activities prohibited by the church. So it just seemed logical for me to leave the church. I don't think there was any resentment at that point. Um, 
resentment towards God may have come later, but certainly not um, during the uh, during those early teen years. And, and as we all understand, uh, any degree of sin, uh, if continued over and over, can lead to to more serious sin. So, can you explain yes. a little how how that developed into other addictions in your life as well? Yeah, that's right. And, and Paul describes it very well in Romans um, how you sort of you exchange the goods of God and the truth of God for, for all the false things. I love that uh, when um, in Bishop uh, Barron's or then Father Barron's presentation, Seven Deadly Sins, Seven Lively Virtues, he boils all sin down to hopping around four false altars, wealth, pleasure, power and honour. And, and that then for me it started off with, uh, with pleasure, certainly. Um, and, yeah, it does. It, uh, once you've removed from the sacraments, once you're, you're no longer thinking about and praying to God, then sort of anything goes pretty much. Uh, so uh, masturbation led to pornography, uh, which led to a deep desire for, for more pleasure. Um, and unfortunately for me, I also have the disease of alcoholism. So when I discovered alcohol at age 17, um, I discovered a whole new paradigm. I, I was always a very anxious child. So alcohol uh, took away my anxiety and, and especially when in social situations and especially when talking with women. So um, I still had the anxiety. I wouldn't um, uh, get any relief from that for, for decades. But the alcohol was always a temporary uh, self-medication. Uh, but I drank alcoholically from the age of 17. Now, obviously, that straight away there is going to have a really negative impact yes. on your life and, and everything that you're doing uh, because that's, I suppose, in a way, it's a, as you, you're mentioning, it's, it's a way to feel more comfortable in your own skin. You were trying to, to find comfort there. But how did that affect you and your relationships with people, whether it be working relationships, family, family relationships and the like? Yeah, well, it, it darkens the mind that, that uh, the image of God that is in us is, is our intellect and will. And when you take alcohol to the point of drunkenness, and for many alcoholics, that's the first one. <laughs> the first drink leads to drunkenness. Uh, that ability to choose rationally is taken from you. And, uh, and, and so you make all sorts of crazy decisions and it's also very self-centering. So the alcoholic, because the focus is on the alcohol to get the, the pleasure of whatever it is, whether it's um, facilitating the pursuit of some other pleasure, uh, like, like with me, so um, the idea of physical pleasures being really the primary that I was using the alcohol to get to, um, but unfortunately for my biological makeup, that that uh, alcohol itself instantly became an addiction because one of the big differences between an alcohol, uh, uh, someone with alcoholism and a normal drinker is that we get this sensation of craving that can't be uh, satisfied. So uh, it took a long, it took a while. Uh, our, mine was a pretty destructive sort of alcoholism. So um, it manifested reasonably quickly. You get a lot of um, people with alcoholism who just um, who are uh, what they call top-up drinkers. These are people that uh, achieve a level of drunkenness and kind of stay there the whole day. And these can be very high-functioning um, people, uh, even though they have this disease. But 
I'm one of the uh, the types that they call uh, binge blackout drinkers. So I might be able to handle my alcohol, you know, on day one and day two, and but you just never knew when that first drink was going to trigger you off into into this massive binge where a hundred wasn't enough. So uh, when you when you're that type. Uh, when you're struggling with that type of a disease, uh, it's soon, as you get a little bit older, the hangovers start to kick in and you start to get sick and it starts to become very difficult to hold down jobs. So and without going, without going into the, the details of it, how low mm-hmm. do you go with that? Like how, how um, yep. pressing does that get for you, knowing that you're in something that you know, these short pleasures that end in these really bad lows at the end, how, yeah. how low do you go? Well, it's different for each person um, and uh, there's, a, there's a blindness uh, with it. So um, I think I heard Scott Hahn once say in a, a podcast that sin makes you stupid. I completely relate to that because there was an utter blindness going on to, to the reality of the situation where I could not control my drinking and it was leading to destructive and risky behaviours but it was also leading to terrible consequences where I would lose jobs and I would lose accommodation and, uh, and all sorts of things. Uh, and the other thing is that we get very good at lying, uh, those of us with alcoholism, so we tend to hide it from those closest to us. And, and that's a lot of that going on. That's a question I've got there. People who suffer yeah. from these addictions, they might go through the stages of justifying their actions to themselves yeah, right. and to other people and suggesting that they don't really have a problem. That's but right. What they find is even though they say, oh, I can stop any time, it's not an addiction, when they try to, they realise they can't. And I yeah. suppose that's depression kicks the depression kicks in and the, yes. the whole sense of despair and I've got no control over this. And yeah. uh, as, as Christians, we, we know that we don't have control anyway, but yeah. somebody does. Yes. Yeah. And have to hand over the, the need for that control. But but yeah. when you're detached from your faith, that must be really challenging to be experiencing that without that, that faith connection. Of course, because there's no objective reality. So yeah. I, I, I can't judge my own um, actions based on the objective virtues. I, and I, there's, there's, you, you're just absolutely uh, rudderless. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, a, a person with an addiction will, as you say, start to justify but also then exhibit all sorts of weird behaviours in order to run away from the truth. And, and ultimately sure. it's, it's, it's running away from, from God. Um, and so a lot of us become travellers, like we start to blame other people or places. And so um, a lot of us with these addictions will just um, get to this low point it's not low enough to make us desperate enough to do something about it, but it's low enough for an action. Unfortunately, we might choose something like travelling. So for me, that was going all the way over to the UK where just my addiction just got deeper and deeper and uh, spilled over into even more addictions uh, like drugs and sex and, yeah. This actually might be a good time just to stop right there and let's clarify the difference between what is a bad habit and what is an addiction? When yeah. you say addiction, how does that differ from just a bad habit? Well, it's, it's best to relate it to, to sin. Um, so no one comes straight out of the gate as a murderer, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, or rather it's, it's uh, 
you know, it's pretty rare <laughs> that someone would come straight out of the gate and just suddenly decide to kill someone one day. Um, no one sets out to become an addict of anything. We've got to remember that um, to the best of our ability, we don't actually choose evil. There's always a perceived good that we're following and so we justify our actions uh, to get towards that good. So at the beginning, it's simply uh, this idea of, uh, of sin as being missing the mark. We're choosing something lesser. We're choosing a lesser good over the ultimate goods um, that God is offering us. So it's, it's, it's inch by inch that we sort of start delving into um, these more depraved behaviours. So a habit is something that we do without thinking. Uh, so we've instead of um, forming the habit of choosing the, the higher good, we start to choose the lesser good more and more often. This is now starting to look like a, a habit. But when it becomes an addiction, so when God sort of removes himself farther from us, uh, then we really experience the, um, the, the true horror of our actions. And that's when this habit is something that we cannot give up. Uh, see, in my last five years of um, alcoholism, I've been brought uh, so low that I suspected that alcohol was the root of my problem, but I wasn't willing to give it up yet because it was so addictive, it was so habitual. So um, this is what uh, a lot of people in the recovery rooms call um, their control drinking phase, where we go out and we have all sorts of weird and wonderful plans as to how we're not going to get drunk that night. Like, oh, I'll only drink light beers. I can't possibly get drunk if I only drink light beers. Fact of the matter is, if you drink 27 of them, you really can get very, very drunk. Um, and other, other weird things like I'll have water between each drink and that lasts, you know, three glasses of water and, or, or I'll drink top shelf because that's better alcohol. And, yeah, that sort Which of thing because you just, you, you, you can't give it up. There's, you, you know it's the problem. You know deep in your heart that it is the very root of the problem. Yeah. But at the same time, the mere thought of trying to give it up um, is almost impossible. A lot of us, and I certainly did this, would, uh, would say, well, I'm going to prove to myself that I can, I can give it up. So I'm going to have this three-month period dry. And I, I think I did that um, twice. And both times I didn't make the full three months for a start. Um, but it's the difference between um, going for that three-month period and stopping altogether is massive. Because if you're proving to yourself you can give up by just having a period where you give up, well, you're already telling yourself that you're going to start drinking again at some point in the future. Sure. And, and actually, I, I can relate to that from the perspective of um, a lot of people have heard of the, the Exodus 90 program. Yeah. And I, at the time of this recording, a few days from the end of that, I think we're up to day 86 of the 90. And that... Wow. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing experience, but one thing that's constantly brought up in, in, the, in the experience is that um, 90 is just a number. And if we think that after 90 days we're free again, then we're actually still enslaved. And, that's um, right. And that's the right. Freedom that is so hard for, if you're resolved to get through 90 days and then have no plan after it, yes. then those 90 days are all for naught because yes. you've yeah. got the plan. So it just goes to show it's so important to know Yep. what you're going to go on with. You can set yourself a short-term goal, 
Yes. But it's all about setting yourself a long-term plan and that's the first step in that plan, isn't it? That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, in fact, the, the very first step is, is being able to name our faults. If we can't name the sin or the disorder, we can do nothing to beat it. So if I can't say to myself, I am someone who has the disease of alcoholism, there's no way I'm going to beat it. I mean, this is true of any disease. If someone gets a cancer diagnosis and refuses to believe it, refuses to name it, well, they're not going to seek treatment. And it's the, it's the same with, with any addiction. Uh, you need to know uh, the, what the, the greater good uh, that is in opposition to the vice that you're pursuing, which is the lesser good. Yeah. Before we get to the good news side of this story, and the story, your own story does get better and is a yes. lot better, yes. which is, which is uh, praise God, it's exciting, uh, the, the other end of this story. But let's yep. just stop here for a moment and, and let's apply this discussion to the situation we're in now. As I mentioned mm -hmm. at the start, there's a lot of people that think they've got a lot more time on their hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and with that comes risks because if we misuse that time and we, we get lazy with our time and, and we start spending time um, in, in the wrong areas and mm. I suppose it can be really, really easy to fall into one of many different addictions. Yes. And, and from your own experience, what advice would you give in these current times to people that aren't able to get out and live their daily lives therefore need to come up with a new daily routine? I think that's a big part of it, just the routine. Uh, for, for me, once this whole thing started, uh, so big, big surprise for me has been that my workload has increased. Uh, as an events coordinator for Perusia, you know, you'd think that, oh, well, live events are off, there's nothing for Matthew to do. But in fact, we've decided to go online and uh, I've found myself most surprisingly becoming one of Perusia's uh, Bible study leaders. So suddenly I'm doing a Bible study online and then next term I'm going to be doing two studies online. So if anything, my workload has increased. And uh, I found very quickly that if I didn't have a, a schedule to follow as I did in my normal um, daily routine, sure, it's going to be different, it's going to be modified. If I didn't do that, it was all too easy for me to, say, binge on work and then get so tired that then um, I'm, I'm completely shattered now. I haven't had a break for four hours. Um, oh, well, I need something just to switch off for a minute. So I might go and play um, 20 minutes of Halo. Of course, if I'm not careful, if I'm not really tough with myself, that 20 minutes of Halo then turns into a four-hour session because it's all too easy to say, ah, oh, one more level. I'll get, I'll get back to work in a minute. So one, one. it's all too easy, yeah. One really interesting thing you mentioned in there is is binging on work as the workload increase, mm -hmm. increases. Mm -hmm. um, something that I recently heard Jeff Caven say, uh, we've recently had the, the virtual Catholic conference, which is the yep. basically the coming together of a whole lot of, of Catholic presenters. I think there were over 60 presenters, musicians that, that contributed to this, and the idea was that all of their events at the different parishes and and parish um, apostolates had been cancelled indefinitely. So what can they do to stay in touch with people and, and to share the faith? And, and the result was the the, uh, the virtual Catholic conference. Uh, there's over 20 hours of content uh, that was available over the weekend. Yep. And that is actually something that is a good thing in itself. Yes. But 
if we spend too long on something like that and yes. and think, oh, just one more talk, just one yes. more talk, and, and we can actually become addicted to something like that that was ultimately a good thing in and of itself, yes. but we can actually put that as a, a time filler and take our time away from other things that would probably be more beneficial, spending time with the family, getting chores yes. done around the house while we're at yes. home to be able to. And, yep. and, and on that topic that one of the presentations I listened to at that was actually Jeff Cavins and he mm. he was making this point his, his talk was on uh the um the quarantined man uh which was mm -hmm. uh, as with Jeff is always a catchy title he's fantastic yeah, he's great at that <laughs> but yeah he he made the point in there is that binging on good catholic content yes. is still binging and is not necessarily healthy and so as, as you say there you can you can binge on your work and as, as worthwhile as your job might be if you're, yes. you're binging on that and, and putting the wrong importance on it and taking that importance away from, from other things, yep. that can actually be quite uh, uh, damaging as well. Absolutely it can, yeah. And, uh, look, I love that, um, that Jeff brought that up because, of course, um, in his book, uh, The Activated Disciple, he describes um, five disciplines of disciples and, and that's really what I'm talking about here for me I needed the discipline of a schedule now I'm not I'm not saying that I've I've managed to nail the schedule yet <laughs> I haven't not one day have I managed to follow the schedule um, perfectly but I need to I need to be striving for that and I also need to engage a lot of prudence in um, in allocating time on that schedule so I think a big part of this, and it's, uh, I think it's something that the church has, um, has not been very good at for a long time, is, uh, is the teaching of virtue because really um, these are vices and the antidote to vice is, is virtue. And that's, that's the wonderful thing about the Catholic Church. It's never just a no to something. The church isn't a whole bunch of you can't do this, you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, God always calls us from something to something that's exactly what he does with israel he calls them out of slavery uh takes their hard heads a long time to to learn the lessons but that's applicable to us i mean you know i i had uh in, i've only been home in holy mother church since uh the 21st of september 2015 so with over three decades of habitual sin and addiction behind me it's a really hard road back. And the only, the, I only started to have success once I, once I stumbled upon this idea of pursuing virtue as the antidote to vice. So it, it requires some knowledge. It actually requires some, some intellect here, the will over the passions. And we need to educate ourselves on what these virtues are and then we can apply that to our, our schedule and our day and think, what am I supposed to be doing right now? What, is this a work period? Is this a study period? Is this a family period? Is this a prayer period? And, and really work that out. And uh, for me, definitely putting a schedule together has been uh, all important. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we, we mentioned a little bit before you, when you were sharing your story, you touched on the the impact on on your work and, and losing job after job and and in the in the presentation uh, from selfishness to service you go through that in quite detail and you went from one thing to another yep. but let's let's come back for a minute just to the impact on family um, mm -hmm. now for someone listening who might be desperately trying to get through to a loved one 
mm. um, who's in some sort of difficult situation, how can we deal with our loved ones who are struggling with something? Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't really want to hear what we have to say. So, yeah. so can you share a little bit about your own experience in, in your connection with your family throughout your struggles and, yeah. and how that is now and, yeah. and, uh, and, and what is it like for those people on the other side yeah. of this, watching someone who's suffering so much that they love, yeah. how, can they, how can they work with them? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the hardest question. It really is the hardest question. Uh, the first thing um, people need to realise is that uh, the, the, the individual hasn't necessarily chosen this. Um, a lot of us with addictions, particularly of the chemical nature, so any sort of drug addiction of which, of which alcohol is one, there's, there's a physical component to it. So uh, these, these diseases of addiction, right, all sin, uh, is spiritual, physical and emotional. So it's, it's always that three-pronged situation. And so it's very, very difficult to be looking at a loved one who is so clearly in a horrible way of life, and believe me, they are suffering. They are truly suffering. And you might want to bring them out of it, but I'll tell you what um, a lot of our uh, those with alcoholic um, tendencies uh, will do. Uh, occasionally, even someone struggling with alcoholism will need to go to the doctor. So we'll go to a GP and we'll probably go to the same practice uh, time after time wherever you live for, you know, for various illnesses and so on. And then over time, if a GP gets to know us, they, they, tend, they tend to sort of pick up on a few things. And they might uh, see blood pressure doing crazy stuff and, and so on and so forth. And they might ask us about our drinking. And we will inevitably lie to them. Uh, but it gets eventually it gets to the point where the um, the physiological damage is starting to show, and a GP will say to someone with alcoholism, "We really need to do something about your drinking because it's killing you." And you know what the person with alcoholism will do? Find another doctor. Yep. So if want to face that reality. If if we're gonna if we're gonna do that with GPs. Who, who have a professional relationship with us, imagine how hard it's going to be for someone with the blindness of this addiction on them to listen to a loved one. It's, it's virtually impossible. Um, it, there is hope. There is certainly hope. I'm a living example of that. There is hope for some. Um, the best, one of the best ways is to have that individual talk with someone who has beaten it or is beating it. Uh, so it's, it, it would be putting them in contact with someone like myself who can talk to them and ask them questions about their life and about their addictions, their drinking, et cetera, et cetera. It's someone who knows what they're going through is going to be more capable of getting through to them. Um, leaving a copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous um, accidentally in their house can be very helpful. I yeah. highly, highly recommend that. Um, in recovery rooms, you heard uh, a lot of stories of um, family who have left a copy of that book on the, the suffering individual's bookshelf and they just happen to pick it up at the right time and they read the stories of people who are going through what they're going through and they just go, this is it. This is the answer. So that's helpful. The other thing I would say, and this is the harder advice, this is the much harder advice, is that 
family have got to be very, very careful about enabling the addiction. So if they've got someone in their life who is suffering from gambling, alcohol, drugs, et cetera, et cetera, one of the worst things you can do is give them money because they're just going to go and spend it on the addiction and they're never going to hit rock bottom because they're being enabled in that addiction. What a lot of addicts find is that we need to hit rock bottom before we start to wake up to ourselves. And, look, for some that is, that is going all the way to living on the streets, sometimes for decades. So it's a, it's a very hard tightrope walk when it comes to loving them and giving them um, what they need to help them survive but at the same time not giving so much that you're just absolutely enabling the addiction and, and they're never going to get a chance to hit rock bottom. Sure. For everyone, the rock bottom is different. Mine didn't go as low as some, praise God. Uh, everyone is different. We've got to remember that, uh, that our, our crosses are individually tailored to each and every one of us. So, Absolutely. yeah, that would be my advice. It's hard advice. It's very difficult advice, particularly on that enabling front, and it, it is a fine line, but, yeah, important. It, it, it's really difficult to see someone we love suffering. Yes, uh, yes. But, same time, if it's not handled sensitively, yep. uh, then for all the well intention, you could actually, as you're suggesting, make things worse. So, and yes. I would add to that, yep. seek professional help. Even if you're not the one uh, who is suffering through the addiction, you're yep. the one who is struggling watching someone you love suffer through it, would be yeah, to, to seek that. professional help and to try and, and connect the dots for them to, to get in and, and yep. seek that professional help and don't try and, and be the hero from the sense of I can fix it, be yeah. the hero in the sense of I will help you. Yeah, well, you think about um, um, uh, Augustine's mother uh, sure. who prayed and prayed and prayed for Augustine and what did she pray for? She, she didn't pray that uh, he would listen to her. She prayed for someone to come into his life who yes. he would listen to and that's the more likely path. And, of course, the other advice I would give to family too is learn the virtues. Yes. And, and find a virtue and find a practice that, um, that you know you're not doing. Identify one vice in your life and give it up because in doing so, in trying to give up something that is a vice and pursue virtue, you're going to be able to get into the mind of the individual a, a bit easier. Absolutely, um, and and it's this is the thing. Every single one of us has some form of addiction in our life because we're not perfect, and we're not going to be until the next life, at the very earliest. <laughs> as soon as we we think we we've made it and we we've finally beaten it, then yeah. we're very much mistaken, aren't we? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, this is this is why I use the halo example. I, I have utterly failed. Uh, in in uh, in prayer life the past couple of nights because it's exactly what I did. I fell into the old trap of uh, just one more level. Before I know it, it's uh, it's past my bedtime. It's, yes. it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy to happen that way. It's so so that's, easy. It we've is. just got to remain vigilant. Um, Very vigilant. And, yeah, definitely the pursuit of virtue, the pursuit of higher goods is always going to be the antidote to this sort of life for sure, yeah. Now let's let's take the positive spin from your story. So mm -hmm. when you reached your rock bottom, yep. 
what what did that look like? How did things start improving? What steps did you take? Uh, what people were put in your path that actually helped you to get back on the right track? Yeah, and that's we're getting back to Monica and Augustine uh, again. That it's providence, it's God, it's it's gratia prima, grace first. Um, the first big one for me was uh, when I received a phone call. I was travel, still travelling in the UK. I was over there for about three years uh, to tell me that my grandfather was dying, um, and I just managed to to kick the drug addiction, um, but my alcohol my alcohol consumption was at its worst um, and uh, my family were telling me, you've got to get home now if you want to see your grandfather before he dies. And I had no money and I was not emotionally capable of even dealing with this. But my family pulled together and they ended up getting me um, a flight home and uh, I got to see my grandfather before he died. In fact, I was picked up at the airport, taken straight to his hospital bed and by this stage he couldn't see couldn't talk, could barely move, but his hand jerked to reach for me when he heard my voice. And I was able to sit there and talk to him for a little while. And then the nurses came in and they wanted us to step out so they could turn him. And then suddenly they popped their head out the wing, out of the room and said, you better get back in here. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I was called back into literally my grandfather's deathbed. So I was there the moment my grandfather died. Now, uh, scientism, the belief that the only knowledge worth knowing can be achieved through the scientific method, was was my justification for why the church was wrong all this time. Um, I think that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through baptism uh, really worked on me the whole way. The parents, the greatest gift you can give your children is baptism in the Catholic Church. Um, I think this worked on me all the time all the time because it is something that I would often think about. Now, when I was there in, in my grand, at my grandfather's deathbed, the moment he died, something happened in that room that I cannot describe, right? My grandfather went from being a living human being to just a body in the biological processes of death, and that moment was incredible. I literally cannot describe it, but I also (laughs) couldn't explain it using the scientific method. So for me, this was the big providential moment where this justification I'd used all of these years was suddenly smashed to pieces. But it wasn't until five years, it was over five years later um, that I was actually able to do something about it. Um, And it actually occurred through uh, the most terrible of circumstances. It occurred through my sister's suicide. And it was after my sister's suicide uh, that I sought counselling, I sought bereavement counselling, and um, I started to worry about my own mental health. Like, was that the path I was going to go down? So uh, a helpful GP put me on some drugs, which I had an incredibly bad reaction to. In fact, you know, three days later, I was I was hospitalised because of this drug that sent me absolutely stark raving mad. Uh, and then I was put on Valium for a week and told to seek counselling. And it was when I went back to that bereavement counsellor that she picked up on one element of the story of this weekend where I, I, I took the drug. So I took a quarter of, a, of the smallest dose on a Friday and several a couple of hours later, my reaction to this drug was to pick up a drink because this drug 
shot my anxiety through the roof. And thankfully, this counsellor, this bereavement counsellor, picked up on this and she concentrated on joining these two instances. My anxiety goes up, I pick up a drink. And suddenly we started talking about my anxiety and its relationship to my drinking. And by the end of that session, I'd been shown the truth so clearly um, that she was able to say to me, I think you might be an alcoholic. And I said, you know what, I think you're right. So and that or admitting to the to the problem. That's admitting the problem. Suddenly I am saying, yes, I have alcoholism. I have this problem. This is this is real. I've identified the evil. Now I can start to defeat it. So after this, I went home and uh, I actually called Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, and I had a, a, a funny but uh, but very strange experience because uh, the the guy was very kind to me on the phone and uh, he said, "Look, I'm so glad you've called today." And I thought, "Oh, that's weird." And he said, "What are you doing tonight?" nothing you know i just lost another relationship and another job so i had absolutely nothing on and he said well that's great news because our annual convention is in sydney this year and it starts tonight so a lot of uh, addicts when they first walk into a recovery meeting walk into a room of of maybe 12 people a couple of dozen uh, and here I found myself outside uh, the entrance to the ballroom at the Hilton in Sydney with three and a half thousand people. <laughs> so it was quite daunting. Um, but thankfully I was led to eventually um, make the phone call. And the, the thing that, that really uh, jumped out at me, and I think this was providence again, I think this whole thing was God's providence, uh, whilst I was waiting there and I'm, uh, you know, deciding whether or not to make the call, to make the contact, to then be taken in, I'm trying to decide all this. And I kept getting annoyed with people because they kept walking past me and saying hello. Really irritated me. And eventually, eventually I noticed something and I noticed that these people who are annoying me by saying hello, by being friendly, they were smiling. And I wasn't. And That's I it. wanted some of what they had. And I made the phone call. Most intense Easter weekend of my entire life. That was 2007. Mm. Absolutely. And it's it's hearing the testimony. And I've, and I've heard your testimony a few times now. And, and I was involved in the editing of the audio of it, actually. So <laughs> I've, I've heard it quite a few times. And you never cease to be inspired by, as you say, God's providence. Yeah. All we've got to do is be willing to turn to him and he is providing for us. And, and you're the example of even through even through difficult situations, through your grandfather's passing, through your sister's death, yeah. God is there and providing for you and, and God's glory can come through those really difficult situations. And great good out of the most terrible suffering, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, it's very inspiring. Look, I, at this point I'd like to just remind people uh, that your full testimony is available uh, if you were to visit uh, store.perusiamedia.com. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, there it is, From Selfishness to Service, One Addict's Struggle. And that's your full testimony. And, mm. and and credit to you, that it takes a lot of courage to get out there and speak about these things and to put your hand up and to say, I've really struggled with this and I'm sharing my experience yeah. in an attempt to to maybe help somebody else avoid going through the same thing themselves. So all yeah. I can say to you on that front is thank you for your courage 
mm. um, and for your testimony. Uh, it's an inspiring testimony. We may not all go through the same things that you've gone through, but we all have our own crosses in our life and we all have our own struggles. And ever since I've, I've been at Perusia for five years now and I've heard a lot of different testimonies from a lot of people from various walks of life. And, and for me, one of the most powerful things you can hear is a testimony from someone who has gone through a difficult time. Sometimes it's similar things to what we're going through. Other times it's completely different, but yeah. you're hearing their struggle. You're feeling their pain with them. You're sharing the experience. So, so yeah. thank you for, for having the courage to get out there and share your testimony. No, you're welcome. And it's important when hearing these testimonies to listen to those similarities between that testimony and our own lives. Uh, the mistake would be to listen to my testimony and then think, oh, why do I complain about my suffering when there's people out there suffering greater than me? Again, individual crosses. Everyone's suffering is real and those crosses are individually tailored to us. So we, we, we shouldn't fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to others. Listen for those similarities. Listen for, for what God is calling us to tackle in our own lives through the story of another uh, whom he has uh, successfully gotten through to. And you're, you're talking about the crosses in our lives. I think I mentioned on on the podcast, the episode a few back where I was actually the one interviewed and that was quite a daunting experience. I'm, I'm not used to that. So, But yes. in, in that episode, I think I mentioned uh, I'd been looking at um, Dr. Edward Shree's program, No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion. And in that, he makes the point uh, using the, the example of um, um, Simon of Cyrene. Yeah. And Simon was enlisted to carry Christ's cross with him. Yeah. Um, he wasn't prepared for that. He wasn't coming in for that. But what yeah. a, um, a blessing that must have been for him. And then he likened it to us in our own life. And, and when we're, a cross is given to us to carry, we can rely on the fact that Christ is there carrying our cross. Now, if we choose not to accept the crosses in our lives and, and try and look elsewhere and say, no, I'll, I'll take that other cross, please, I think I can handle that better, mm. we'll actually find it might have seemed easier that it's actually heavier because yeah. all of a sudden Christ isn't carrying that cross with us. That's right. So, yeah, it, the, yeah, the power of, um, I suppose, accepting God's will in our lives, uh, yes. even when it's challenging. Um, yes. God is always there. We talked about uh, God's providence. He's always there with us. And all of these things just, just bring that to mind. Um, yeah. Before we finish and wrap up here today, um, let's just take just one takeaway, if you could. Um, in this current circumstance, everything's crazy. Um, who knows when it's going to end? Who knows if it's ever going to go back to the way it was? That's, that's all to be, mm -hmm. to be seen. But from this whole discussion, what's the one takeaway you can offer people? Um, to um, to people who are either struggling with addiction or people who are uh, have are dealing with it, they're in a good place to avoid falling back into it in the current times. What's what's one takeaway you can offer? Yeah, and it's this this situation is going to make it very difficult for those struggling with addiction because loneliness can be an absolute killer. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I think it really does come back to um, providing yourself with a schedule. Uh, providing mapping out um, mapping out one's day and trying to find a balance in it a balance between work and uh, prayer and leisure and and all those sorts of uh, of things uh, a balance is going to be is going to really make the difference but the hard part of it is to realize that um, 
our feelings can lie to us. Mm-hmm. That particularly when we're pursuing when we're pursuing virtue uh, and and we are trying to pursue these higher goods. And if we've got a schedule, then discipline is a virtue that we need to apply to this schedule. And so sitting there and saying, uh, I'm suffering, I don't feel like it, is going to be a killer because then we're listening to the emotions and we're not engaging the will and engaging the intellect. And uh, I've heard I've heard the emotions described uh, like a, a horse that pulls a chariot. The horse doesn't drive the chariot. The charioteer does. And this is the same for the emotions. The chariot's going nowhere without the horse. We go nowhere without our emotions. Our emotions are important, um, but we our, our emotions can lie to us. And so uh, applying the, the intellect and the will over and above those emotions is, is going to be very, very important. I think uh, in, in my situation, uh, the realisation that I had alcoholism uh, was, was an intellectual ad- admission first and foremost. Sure. So, yeah, that's wonderful. that would be my takeaway. Good advice. No, thank you for that. Uh, just course, one. The other one would be if, uh, if people are struggling to, to reach out to me on Facebook or through Perusia, um, I'd be happy to email or talk with people. Would you like to share your email address? Yeah, I've got a new public email address and a, and a public page on Facebook. So it's, it's matthewhermantag at gmail.com. So that's Matthew with two Ts, Herman, H-E-R-M-A-N-N, T-A-G-U-E at gmail.com. Herman is the Benedictine uh, that I attached to my first name when I became a uh, Benedictine oblate, a third order oblate. Wonderful. And just a final reminder there, it is there, From Selfishness to Service, One Addict Struggle. You can get that by visiting store.perusiamedia.com. And just another resource I thought might be um, worth highlighting at the moment, The Crisis of Happiness, Hurting, Addicting and Healing by Jim Owens. Uh, that's a CD from the, the Lighthouse Talks range. People here in Australia, a lot of people no doubt know that range very well. Um, that was our CD of the month, oh, quite a few months back as well now, but that's also available at store.perusiamedia.com and that's The Crisis of Happiness, Hurting, Addicting and Healing by Jim Owens. Well, so that's... both resources are available. Just before we wrap up, Matthew, you mentioned uh, back towards the start the, um, the online Bible studies. Can mm. you just... Very quickly, give us a little bit of a, a plug on those. What, where can people find information and, and what have we got coming up? Yeah, well, the best thing that people could do is go to uh, the Parisia website, parisiamedia.com, and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, also find our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. Uh, we are um, working in overdrive to organise these Bible studies for Term 2 and we hope to be announcing them and advertising and taking registrations as of uh, next week. So, yeah, it's, a, it's upon us. So keep your eyes out. And the other, yep. the other place is the, there's actually an events page on um, mm. perusiamedia.com. You can just, yep. just look on the internet page there as well and you can find details there as they become available. Any day now we hope that we'll be able to, to put those out there and they'll be facilitated by both yourself and uh, our director, Shabel Rayesh, there'll be multiple Bible studies running at once. So, so keep your eyes out for those. But thank you once again, Matthew, for your time and, and for your courage and your testimony. Uh, may God bless you in, in your journey. Your journey's 
hopefully far from finished, uh, but hopefully it's bright days ahead for you and, and we really enjoy working with you at Parisia. You're, you're great to have around. Your mm. constant references to pop culture can get a little tedious from time to time, but <laughs> you're always welcome company. All lies. He loves it really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much and, and for your contribution to Parisia and, and, yeah, we look forward to working with you in, in the months and years ahead. I, I feel like the most unlikely choice to do God's work, but that tends to be the way God works. That's the way it works, absolutely. It's the same for all of us. So every single one of us can expect uh, wonderful things when you just hand your will and your life over to the care of God. No doubt about it. Mm. Uh, Thank you, Matthew, for your time. Uh, That's been another Perusia podcast. Uh, Tune in in the weeks ahead. We'll have more uh, conversations with people from Australia and also people internationally Uh, basically sharing the fullness of our faith and as is our mission on the Parisia podcast, we always aim to proclaim the fullness of faith. So thank you for listening and tune in again next time. Thanks and God bless. Mm